great. Amen. And what a powerful song. What a powerful truth. Because the thing is that God wants to be where we are. He wants us in his presence. And so I pray that today we are we're ready to hear from him. Um, hey, if we haven't met, my name is Blake Sherman. I'm the young adult minister. And our pastor can't be here today because uh, his kids are getting brand, uh, his kids Grandkids are getting baptized. Rough start. Grandkids are getting baptized, so we're celebrating with them. We're super excited for him, so we can definitely excuse him for that. Um, so today we're going to be looking, if you have your Bibles, in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. Now, if you've been following along with us the past couple of weeks, we've been in 1 Samuel. Um, we've been looking at all these kings and how they're falling short of the, God, uh, the call that God has placed on them. And here... We're going to turn now towards Easter. And you might be thinking, wait, this passage, this is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Don't we usually wait a little bit to get into that? Well, the way we're doing it is that next Sunday, you're going to be studying this in your life groups. And so we want you to be reflecting on this passage as you move into next week. So we're in Luke 19. And the thing that struck me about this passage um, is that it's this one moment that we look at every single year. Um, and it's not even the Easter passage. Like every single year, pretty much the global church pauses and examines Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Why? Why this moment? Um, there's a really interesting book. If you're a business person, you could check it out. It's a business book called The Power of Moments. And what makes a certain moment more powerful than another? And why do we remember certain moments? Uh, they talk about something called the peak end rule. Psychologists have done a lot of study on this, and they developed something called the peak end rule. So let me use the case study from the book to explain what the peak end rule is. So say you go to Disney World, and you go to Disney World with your family, and I say, hey, I want you to rate every single hour on a scale of one to 10 for how much fun you're having. So as you go throughout your time at Disney World, at the end of every hour, I just want you to give it a rating from one to 10. Uh, so you wake up, 9 a.m., you're like cattle herding the kids out the door, trying to get there. You're on edge, but they're having fun. They're excited. You give that a six. Um, then you get there. You write, it's a small world. You think the kids are having fun. They're actually not. You're not having fun. No one's having fun, but you're on the small world. And you give it a five. Then you go to Space Mountain and dopamine rush. You're pumped. The kids are pumped. Let's do it again. You give it a 10. Then you go get uh, Disney Park food. You spend a fortune, the kids are enjoying it, but they just lost their tuition money. It's a lot of fun. Um, they gave it in the book a seven. I probably would have given it like a three or four personally. But so you give it a seven. Then you go wait in a line for 45 minutes um, in 100 degree heat. Your toddler's screaming at you because you didn't eat the expensive food that you just bought. Uh, you give that a two. And then on the way out, you pause and you buy those Mickey Mouse ears and you take a picture together. Great moment. Let's give it an eight. Okay, so we, if we looked at that and we averaged out that day, we would say that day was probably about a 6.5, 6.5 out of 10, if we averaged it out. But psychologists say, actually, if you waited a couple of weeks, most people would rate that day a nine out of 10. And the reason is because they remember the peak moment and the ending moment. They, remember, they're, they look at the space mountain moment and they say, that was a 10. And they go to the end moment and they say, and that was an eight, so it was about a nine. Like that's just how our minds work. We start to filter things and we say the peak moment and the ending moment are really defining of how this moves. The reason I point that out is if you're reading the gospels, you might think from our vantage point, why are we reading this passage? 
Like, why are we reading about a guy riding a donkey 2,000 years ago? Like, surely we should read something about, you know, him feeding the 5,000 or raising Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty impressive. Those look like peak moments. But actually, in the biblical narrative, this is the peak moment. I mean, we've been going through 1 Samuel, we've been seeing these kings fall short, and now we're seeing the true king, the son of God, arrive to Jerusalem, and he's announcing, I have a right to the throne. It's a peak moment, and particularly when we take it with the end moment, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, it tells us a lot about the gospel. Um, So I'm ready to dig into it. And, you know, one of the interesting things about that book is they say there's four things that make up a great moment. And they have a cheesy acronym, but it's EPIC. So E, elevation, P, pride, I, insight, C, connection. And we're going to see all four of those elements in this passage. There's going to be elevation in the sense that it lifts you out of the mundane. Um, Things are different. Something different's happening in this moment. P, there's pride, which means achievement. The disciples, they're going to experience some sense of achievement because they've been waiting for Jesus to say that he's the king, and now he's actually doing it, and they're excited. I, there's insight in that they're going to learn that Jesus is different than all the other kings. He's a different kind of king. And see, connection, there's the possibility that we can connect to something greater than ourselves if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. All right, you ready to dig in? So Luke 19, verse 28, and if you're a note taker, I'm basically going to be going in these three stages, revealed, response, and result. So what has been revealed to us from this passage? What should be our response to what's been revealed? And what's the result based on our response? Like, what's the consequence of our response? Um, So I want you to place yourself in the passage. It's Passover. And so pilgrims from all over the Jewish world were pouring into Jerusalem. Some scholars think that Jerusalem would have... uh, been six times its size and population. So it was just busting at the seams. And maybe you'd seen some of Jesus's ministry. Maybe you'd been in Galilee. You'd read the miracles. You'd seen what he had done. And now this moment happens, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, just a pause, what he just got done talking about was a parable. And in that parable, he mentions how a king would be rejected. Just a little bit of foreshadowing. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and then catch this, they put, they and put Jesus on it. They're recognizing what's happening. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All right. What's happening in this moment? What's being revealed in this moment? Well, it's really interesting because Jesus, for the most part, his ministry, he had done everything on foot. Everywhere he went, it was on foot. Um, And now they're outside of Jerusalem and Jesus is like, no, for this last mile, I need a ride, okay? I need a ride. I need you to go in that village ahead and they're gonna have a donkey. 
Tell them that the Lord needs it and bring the donkey to me. I'm gonna ride in on this donkey. Why? Well, he's fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that said that the king would ride in victorious to a city rejoicing and he would bring peace with him. He would bring salvation with him. And so they go and they do this and it turns out that what Jesus said is completely right. So not only does he have this prophecy being fulfilled, but he has prophetic insight into what's about to happen. He's seeing the road ahead of him. He's not blind that the cross is coming. He knows he's about to be rejected. So he's heading out in this direction. And then as they go, they start to lay cloaks in front of him. They start to take off their cloaks and lay it down so the donkey can ride over it. This goes back to 2 Kings 9. And this is something that you would do if they were royalty. And so they're recognizing Jesus is a king. He has royalty. And so they're like kind of rolling out this red carpet for Jesus to ride on. An interesting thing about it is one scholar pointed out that most of the people that experienced Jesus's ministry, most of the people that Jesus had interacted with were the lowly and the cast out. They were the poor. And, and so they're not laying down beautiful cloaks. They're, they're laying down what they have, tattered cloaks. There's holes in it. And they're just, they're laying it down and saying, this is our king. And he's riding in on a donkey. It's a beautiful moment. And you know, you only would have, got into Jerusalem like that if you had won a victory. And someone on the outside, they might say, well, what military victory have you won? What right do you have to ride in like this? And what the people are saying is, no, we've seen the way that this king wins victories. We've seen the way that this kingdom wages war. He takes the poor, he takes the lowly, he takes the cast out, the lepers, the blind, the lame, the dead, and he raises them up. We've seen the way that he wages war. And this is our king. You know, if you were there in that moment and all this was happening in front of you and you knew what was being fulfilled and all this, do you think you would have gotten swept up in the moment or do you think that you would have been a little skeptical? I think that they were, there was people in the crowd that were definitely skeptical. They had a lot of reasons to be. You know, this wasn't the first time in their history they had seen something like this. In their people's history about a century and a half ago, Judah Maccabee, he, he routed the Seleucid armies. He won against the Seleucid armies and he rode in to Jerusalem and they laid cloaks on the ground and they said, God has come to save us. And then he went into the temple, just like Jesus is gonna do. He goes straight into the temple and he overthrows the pagan idols and they thought the kingdom is here. And now they're under Roman occupation again. They might be standing back with their arms crossed going, I don't, I don't know, we've seen this before. I'm not gonna put my hope on that just yet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand back a little bit and wonder about this. They had their reasons to be skeptical and we have ours as well. You know, Charles Taylor in his book, The Secular Age says that our age now is defined by the age of authenticity. What that means is that, and he's talking about particularly Americans, what that means is that for us, the highest governing authority with the way that we operate is ourselves. Like that's the thing that, that matters the most to us is that we fulfill our potential, that we remain true to ourselves. It's all about ourselves. And the reason I'm pointing this out is if your ultimate authority is yourself, then any outside authority you have to be skeptical about. Like you have inherent skepticism to any outside authority that tries to tell you to live your life differently. And we see this in our culture, right? Like any position of authority, any beacon of authority, we're trying to undercut it, trying to you know, what, what skeletons do they have? Okay, I know they said that, but what do they actually mean by that? 
You know, we're always trying to undercut this. And I'm not really making a statement about that, but I'm concerned with the way it affects our relationship to Jesus. Because some of us, we would never outright say that we're skeptical of Jesus and his authority. Um, but maybe in our heart of hearts, we are. Maybe within, we're, we're kind of standing back and saying, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if, if I can give myself fully over to you. But this is the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus has been hiding something, you know? With every other leader in our culture, we're wondering, you know, what's gonna happen when I pull the curtain back? You know, like Wizard of Oz, when they pull the curtain back and there's just a dude back there with levers. It's like, what happens when I pull the curtain back and see who you actually are? That's how we view the leaders of our world. But guess what? If you pull the curtain back on Jesus, there is a secret. He has been holding something back. He's been warning people whenever he heals them, don't tell anybody. There's a theological term for this. They call it the messianic secret. The truth is, if you were to pull the curtain back on Jesus and find out who he actually is to drag the skeletons out of the closet, what you would find is that he is actually the Messiah. He is the king of kings. He is the one that we've been waiting for our entire lives. Like, this just blows my mind. If you were gonna dig up dirt on Jesus, you know what you'd find? You'd find glory, honor, salvation. You would find the king of kings, the one that holds all of reality together. The one that was there at the very beginning of the foundation of the earth. He was pushing everything together. He was speaking things in existence. This is our God. And he's riding in now on a donkey. This is being revealed to us. And because it's being revealed, you have to respond. You have to. You know, it reminds me, whenever I was in high school, um, after I graduated high school, I went to England for a year. Took a gap year in England. And uh, I was working with this minister and he took me to a minister's conference and we were sitting around this table and all these pastors were kind of talking. They're all British. And uh, if you don't know me, if I don't know you very well, I just don't talk a lot. I let you do the talking. Um, so I was pretty quiet. They hadn't heard my accent and something had just happened in America and it was all over the news. I don't remember what it was, but they were pretty ticked off about it. So uh, they were sitting there talking, and then one of the pastors just starts going off on Americans. He's like, typical Americans, you know, and he's just talking about how Americans do this, and they're so selfish, and they do that and do this, and I'm just kind of letting him do his thing. And the whole time, the pastor that took me there is going, uh, uh, you know, like trying to, trying to interject, and finally he blurts out, Blake's American, you know. <laughs> and the guy means like, oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, he's very apologetic, very kind. And what he's thinking in his head is, if I had known, if I had known who you were, I, I wouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. If I had known that you, you were American, I wouldn't have talked like that. And here's the reality. I'm not trying to scare anyone here because I don't think scare tactics really work. It's just, it's real. Because of the passage that you're reading now, and because you're hearing that Jesus is Messiah and he is King, and that is being revealed to you, you cannot say at the end of your life, if I had known, if I had known that you were Messiah, I would have responded differently. If I had known that you were the king of kings, I would have given everything to you. No, you know right now. You have to respond. You will never be able to say, I didn't know. That's the power of this moment that Jesus is pulling back the curtain. He's saying, this is who I am. It's who I am. How are you going to respond? And we all respond, either with receiving him or rejecting him. Let's look at the way they responded. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And they were saying, blessed 
is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting a psalm. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Check out verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So powerful. What's happening in this moment is that the disciples, they see, it's been revealed, and they're responding in worship saying, this is the king, this is the king. And then there's some Pharisees in the crowd. And the Pharisees are in the crowd and they don't want this to happen, but they know they can't control this crowd. Like they can't just go around saying, stop, 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 stop. They can't do that. It's a frenzy. And so instead of doing that, they, they appeal to the focus of the worship and they go, hey, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to calm down. This is getting out of hand. But notice the way they call him teacher when everyone around is shouting king. You know, there are those of us that when Jesus reveals who he is, we, we worship him, we glorify him. But there are those of us that have the faith of the Pharisees and we downplay him. You know, it's not outright rejection at this point. It's just downplaying who he actually is. They say, they say teacher, because you're a teacher, rebuke your students. It's getting out of hand. I'm okay with you going around Galilee and teaching a couple things, but don't come in here and claim authority. They're getting to a point, it's starting to get dangerous. Teacher, start to play this down a little bit. They're looking a little fanatical. Let's pull it back. Have you ever been around somebody and you just got like uneasy about how much they trusted God? Like they just had so much faith in God. You're just like, oh, it makes me cringe a little bit. Am I the only one? Or you're around somebody and you think for a moment, like, they're just not being practical. Like, they're not being realistic. They're, they're looking like a fanatic. They need to pull it back. You know, the reason I say it is because I believe that there are so many people in the church today that have Pharisee-level faith, meaning that we're okay calling Jesus teacher, but not king. We're, we're, we're okay with, yeah, Jesus, tell me your compassionate stories. Tell me your parables. Those are really good life lessons that I can kind of chew on, but don't come claiming authority over my life. Back up. I'm all for following Jesus, but, but don't claim authority over my life. I'm all following Jesus, but let's be practical. I'm all for following Jesus, but let's be realistic. I'm all for following Jesus, but don't quote scripture at me. <laughs> How are we going to respond to our king? Well, we have that Pharisee level faith or will we respond with worship? Unhinged worship, just embarrassing worship. That's what was happening. You know, the beautiful thing about this is that regardless of how you respond or I respond, Jesus says this. He says, if they keep quiet, even if I could get them to be quiet, the stones would still cry out. That's so powerful. What he's saying is, even if I get these disciples to stop proclaiming my name as king, even if every single person in this room never declares Jesus as king, the stones would still cry out. What he's saying is, I was there at the beginning. I formed creation. And just like I formed creation, at the end of creation, it doesn't matter. The stones will still cry out. I will always be king, regardless of what anyone says. You can deny reality, you can deny truth, but one day reality and truth will come crashing down on you. That's what's so powerful. You know, A.W. Tozier, um, he had this great line 
And he was talking about people that believed they could be independent of God, that they could be defiant of God and live their own lives. And this is what he says. He said, man in the plan of God has been granted considerable say. So basically saying God lets us say a lot of things. We can say a lot of stuff. But never is man permitted to utter the first word nor the last. That is the prerogative of the deity and one which he will never surrender to his creatures. That can either be really comforting or really terrifying. It's really comforting for those that are in Jesus that he has the first word and the last. But if you're outside of Jesus, that is kind of terrifying. Because for all of our kicking and screaming down here and for all the ways we would like to have kingship and have authority, he is still king. And it's just a matter of how will you respond? Because how you respond, there will be a result. There will be a consequence. Let's look at the consequence, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a really powerful moment. Jesus has this great triumphant entry. He's riding in and then he sees Jerusalem and he breaks down and starts weeping because of the judgment that's gonna come upon them for rejecting him. He knows he's gonna make his way into the city and that they're gonna reject him and they're going to crucify him. He, the one that could bring salvation and peace, they crucify. So he weeps. Now, I don't wanna get into the theological weeds here, but I do wanna say a couple of things. Two things we should take from this passage. One, judgment is very real. It's very real. Sin has a consequence. Rejecting Jesus has a consequence. And guess what? I know sometimes people think ministers are really comfortable talking about judgment. I'm really not because I could be judged, right? I'm not comfortable talking about it, but I have a responsibility to you as a minister of the gospel to tell you there is a result. There is a consequence. You will be judged. Judgment is very real. So that's one thing I want us to catch on to. But the second thing is look at the way Jesus responds to this judgment. He weeps, breaks down in tears. He says, oh, if you had known, if, you, if you'd recognized peace when it had come to you, and it had, right? Like he declared he was the Messiah. They knew, but they rejected him. They rejected him. And I just want you to know that for all the judgment that can come upon you, that is God's heart for you. He weeps for you. He doesn't show up to rejection and say, y'all have done it now. You did it now. I'm gonna have to show you. I'm gonna have to show you that I'm king. I'm gonna have to wipe you out. That's not what he does. He shows up and he weeps. Why? Why did it come to this? Why did it come to this? Jesus, when he was being crucified on the cross and there were people below him and they were casting lots trying to figure out who gets his clothes. He's up there and you know what he says? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is his heart for you. Everything about him is longing, seeking, and weeping after your life. 
He wants to be with you. He wants to be reconciled to you. That's what he desires. But if you reject him, there is judgment. But here's the beautiful thing. In John 1, if you read John 1, it basically tells a snapshot of Jesus' life. And it says that he came and his people rejected him. So that's what we're seeing here. He came and his people rejected him, but John 1.12 has this beautiful verse. It says, but to those who did receive him, to those who recognized him and received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's so powerful. Right? (laughs) Like you have a right to become a child of God. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? He says, no, no, no. Because you have received me, because you saw me and you responded and said, that is the king, I receive you. Because you did that, you now have the right to become a child of God. It's very powerful. And so those things, whenever you're reading this passage, I remember when I was looking at the text, there's part of me that's like, oh, I don't want to end like that. You know, like, why does Jesus end with this like sour note? <laughs> and I was thinking about uh, back in the day when I was a junior in high school and I attended this church, we had Chi Alpha, which is our D-Now weekend. And uh, it was the night of worship and I was actually over here in this area somewhere. And it was just a powerful night of worship. Dutton was playing. So Shane, shout out to Shane, plays lead guitar. He was in Dutton. So Dutton was playing and it was just a powerful night. And it was one of those nights in high school where everyone's just in tears and like, everything's gonna be different, you know? And everyone's just so emotional and like, we're like, God, we're gonna change our school, all this stuff. Um, So we're over there, we're held together. Juniors are all praying together. And I remember one of the leaders came over and we thought, okay, here comes the leader to be like, this is awesome, guys, you know, something like that. But he came over and he prayed a prayer like this. He was like, God, I thank you for what you did in this place tonight. But I also know that a lot of these kids, they're gonna leave and walk out those doors and nothing's gonna change. So would you just keep, keep them close to you? Would you press on them? Would you not have them abandon you? And then he walked away. <laughs> and of course, like all of us as juniors and like we know everything. And so we're like, oh, you know, like... <laughs> How dare he? Like, we had this beautiful moment. God was moving powerfully, and he shows up and basically says, some of y'all are going to walk away, and then leaves. Like, why do that? Why ruin such a good moment? And what he was doing is he was giving us a heavy dose of reality. Because you know what? He was right. A lot of us, we walked out those doors, these very doors, and we walked away from Jesus, rejected Jesus. But underlying that was an invitation to us Basically, what he's saying is, there will be some of you that will reject him. But I'm praying that some of you receive him and follow him to the fullest. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in this moment. He's saying, look, this whole city might reject me, but will you receive me? Will you respond to me? Will you declare me as king of your life? And I don't don't know your life. God knows your life. He knows the things that you've been through. He knows the things that you've done. He knows all the ways that you've rejected him. But he still invites you, hey, you can receive me, you can know me, you can have the right to become a child of God. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna respond in worship. And I just have two things. One, if you don't know Jesus, you've never declared him as king or savior, or maybe you feel like you've gone astray, you rejected him and you don't know how he feels about you, I would love to talk with you. I would love to pray with you. And guess what? God longs to talk with you more than I do. Uh, he, he longs to be reconciled to you more than I, I wish it, you know? 
And that's just crazy to me. That's, how, that's his heart for you. Second, there are some of us that we have Pharisee level faith in this room. Meaning what we do is, is we stand back and we say, let's not get out of hand. Like I'm all for trusting God, but not that much. Uh, let's, just, let's, let's just keep it safe. You might need to repent today and just turn towards the true king and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for cutting you short. I'm sorry for believing that. Would you guide me to be an authentic worshiper, someone that's just sold out for you? And we're gonna sing, uh, close with So Will I, and it's such a good song to close with because it basically just says, hey, regardless of what we think, all of creation is singing out the praise of God. Reality, it's there, that he is the Messiah, he is the king. How will you respond? Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And God, it just, it blows our mind that you would receive us, God, that, you know, we should be the ones begging, God, just begging, but you just say, hey, if, if you receive me, if you believe in my name, we have the rights to become children of God. That just, it's almost too much, God. And so we thank you so much for that. We thank you that that was made possible through your cross. We thank you that it was made possible through the death and resurrection, God, so the old could pass and the new could come. And I just pray that that would happen for somebody in this room today. They've spent a life running from you, God, but now it's been revealed to them. They know that you're king. They know that you're Messiah. And they can never say they didn't know, God. So I just pray that right now you would press them and push them by your spirit to respond and declare you as king over their lives. And then for others of us, God, we have just gotten so caught up in ourselves, in our own powers, our own faculties, God. And I just, I just pray that we would become sold out for you, trusting you completely, acknowledging that the way forward is complete dependence on you and your kingdom. You're our king. You're the Messiah. Whether we acknowledge it or not, Help us to respond the way that you desire. In your name we pray, amen.